Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Danny Sugimoto. I serve as the middle school pastor here, uh, and I also oversee our tech and media. Uh, It is a privilege to be back with you this morning as we continue our series through Luke. Uh, And now, a couple of things about this morning. Uh, About a month ago, I got a little bit sick, uh, and I've been fighting off this cough. Uh, It's this slight little awful annoying thing, um, and it's been the bane of my existence as a person who speaks publicly in front of people uh, because about every 30 seconds or so, I have this little like <laughs> kind of thing. So I'm going to do my best to uh, mitigate that by turning my mic off as needed. I can tell you now, don't panic. It's not COVID. I can promise you that. Uh, I know that there's a little bit of fear in coughing in public spaces, even as I hear some of you do it now, like that, that like feeling of the last two and a half years of fear, just like, oh, no. Uh, but I can promise you it's not COVID. It's nothing to worry about. But it's just a little thing that happens to me anytime I get slightly sick. Uh, so as Andrew read this morning, uh, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. So for the last several weeks, we have been going through this book section by section to see how Luke covers the life of Jesus and to see uh, how we can learn from the words and the actions of Jesus himself. Uh, And this week's passage brings us uh, to a pretty unique circumstance in the story of Jesus. It's one that we've kind of sort of just dipped our toes into uh, because Andrew actually only read a small portion of our passage this morning. Uh, We'll actually be covering almost 20 verses, and it didn't feel right for me to ask somebody to stand here and read 20 verses, uh, especially a high school student. Uh, That would not be fair to them. So we're going to be covering almost 20 verses this morning, which is a lot. We're going to take it section by section, chunk by chunk. I'll take care of you. Just hang out, relax, pay attention. It's going to be good. You can trust me. Uh, So the situation is this. Jesus has been invited over to a Pharisee's house for a meal. He's been teaching. He's had a section of conversation where he's teaching them about light and lamps and how you don't take a light, turn it on, and then hide it under a bushel. You put it out for everyone to see. Jesus has just taught that section of Luke 11. And then he's invited over to this meal at a Pharisee's house. But upon entering into the house, Jesus does something a little bit strange. Jesus foregoes a cultural norm. Now, there's no law declaring it, uh, but it was standard practice uh, to wash yourself prior to eating. Makes sense, right? Uh, Germs, gross things. Yeah, you wash yourself. Uh, But we might think of washing our hands in a sink Uh, getting clean for the food that we're about to grab. Uh, But that's not actually what happens here. Jesus skips washing his feet. Uh, And the reason why this is important is because at the time, meals were eaten in a reclined position. So what you had is a table that was almost like a U, and you would lay down on a pillow on your left side. I'm doing a horrible example of like drawing this out for you. But you'd lay on your left side on your right arm, and you would eat with your right hand. There'd be a short table in front of you. You'd be reclining. You'd be relaxing. This is how I eat on my couch when I'm watching Netflix late at night. Uh, just a bag of Doritos, just going to town. Uh, it's very similar, except it's like formal-ish. Uh, so you're laying in this reclined position. You're eating at a table together. 
But what this means is the person who is next to you, if you're reclined in a horizontal position, look at this, acrobatics, guys. Who knew? Who knew? If you're reclined in a horizontal position, that means that your feet are very, very near the person next to you. Uh, And you have to remember, at the time, they walked everywhere. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. Everyone wore sandals, if they wore anything at all. And so if you didn't wash your feet before you came in to eat this meal, then you're dusty, been walking on them all day, kind of sweaty, definitely stinky. Maybe your heels are a little bit cracked. Uh, They'd be in the face of the person who's trying to eat next to you. And that is not something that you want when you're eating. It's not appetizing in any way. So if you had that in front of you, you'd be a little bit offended. Like, guy, like, wash your feet, like, do your job. Everyone else in this room has done that thing, but Jesus didn't. And so I don't know how the Pharisee noticed this, but he did. He noticed the fact that Jesus had neglected this social practice, but he doesn't say anything. He isn't like, Jesus, what are you doing? That's gross. No, he doesn't say anything, which for me makes me wonder, like, how did this guy recognize that Jesus hadn't done it? Was there a line at this bowl, this basin full of water, and everyone else is there, and Jesus kind of just walks on through? Was he eyeing Jesus like a hawk, as we know the Pharisees did later on in the ministry and the life of Jesus, as they watched him waiting for him to make a mistake? Or maybe the example that I prefer to think about uh, is that there was this little line of dusty footprints leading to the table where Jesus was seated. That's how I like to imagine it. But whatever way, however this Pharisee recognizes this thing that Jesus has not done, he does. And he's astonished by the fact that Jesus didn't follow this practice of washing. And so Jesus, sensing the discomfort in this Pharisee, perhaps sensing the discomfort in the room, recognizes this moment. And then he speaks into it using the metaphor of a cup and a dish. It'll be on your screen starting in verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who, make, who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus here is preparing his sharpest critique against the Pharisees. And he does so by talking about their concerns uh, when it comes to spiritual cleanliness. The, these Pharisees, this group of people were extremely concerned with cleanliness whenever it related to outside actions, actions that could be witnessed by other people, be witnessed by the world around them. When it comes to being pure of heart, that's something that they just don't necessarily care about. These parts that can't easily be seen by others. And so what Jesus is doing here, this is your first bullet point in your notes, is Jesus is addressing spiritual hypocrisy. He's addressing spiritual hypocrisy. See, what made the Pharisees distinct from all these other subgroups of the Jewish faith was their adherence to this complex system of oral traditions. You see, there was the Torah, right? Uh, The book of laws, the Hebrew scriptures, which all the Jewish people followed. But the Pharisees chose to set themselves apart by following these oral traditions, these interpretations that had been handed down to them over the generations. And these would help them understand the Torah, but it would also help them keep the Torah laws. 
A professor that I had in college likened it to kind of putting a fence around the Torah, the fence around God's laws, because they took it so seriously. They were so concerned with making sure that they followed all of the rules that they also established this system of stronger protections, this system of larger guardrails that they couldn't even come close to violating the law. They just kept themselves out. It was a defensive mechanism for them. And so an example of this that we've seen throughout culture, seen through the history of studying this, it has to do with the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Uh, On the Sabbath, uh, it's unlawful for us to work. Uh, It's unlawful to work, I should say. Because not everyone here abides by the Sabbath, like soccer on a Saturday. Yes, please. Even though I play baseball. Baseball. Anyway, uh, how do you define work? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but how do you define work? This is a culture without cars. And so walking was a primary mode of transportation. You have to get to tabernacle. You have to get to church, basically. But you have to walk to get there. And we all know that walking itself can be a workout. I work from home Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and when I'm home with my boys, uh, I would like to take a walk around a lake that's in our community, and I don't know if you've ever done a walk with two children that are younger than five. It's work. It's hard. Uh, My four-year-old loves to be free. He loves to run. He loves to jump around. He wants to go do that all the time, and so there I am walking with him, and he climbs out of the stroller, and he's sprinting up ahead. I'm like, hey, like, buddy, you got to slow down. Like, freeze, 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 and he's running out of sight. I'm like, oh, no, now I have to run, and so I'm like chasing after him. Then he'll stop suddenly. Meanwhile, my almost two-year-old is sitting in our stroller. He just wants snacks, and he's just like, snack, 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 and I'm like, no, buddy, I don't have any snacks. He's like, why don't you have snacks? Walking with children is hard. It is work. As I'm doing it, I'm thinking, man, how did anyone walk anywhere for their lives? But there is a question at the center when it comes to walking on the Sabbath is how far, how far can you walk before your walking is considered work? How much walking is work? Is it a mile? Is it a half mile? Is the distance between like my room and the couch, is that extra work? Can I walk down the street? Can I walk around my house? And so to understand uh, the answer to this question, the Pharisees had all these interpretations of like, well, what do we constitute as work? How does this look? How are we going to understand it? How do we apply this to our lives? And so the Pharisees developed, they followed a system that understood that walking more than a thousand steps was work. And so the Pharisees would walk 999 steps on the Sabbath. That was their limit of how far they could walk. Anything above that was considered work. Anything above that was a violation of the Sabbath laws. That is the level of intensity with which these people respect God's laws, respect their religious practices. That is the level of intensity that they bring into their daily life of keeping the faith. They keep these 613 laws written within the Torah, but then they also keep these laws developed from these oral traditions to help protect them from violating the Torah. But in keeping these practices, in developing this system, what the Pharisees unintentionally did is is they lost sight They lost sight of the intention behind the law. They began to solely highlight their piety, their their reverence in adhering to the law. They started to highlight their individual practice in performing out their faith. And so they began to take pride in how few steps they could take. Oh, you took 300 steps? I took 299 today. That's how good I am at keeping the Sabbath. 
And they started to compare themselves. Then we read stories from the Gospels that talk about how loudly these Pharisees would pray in the streets. Or how when they chose to fast, they would disfigure their faces like, oh, woe is me. Life is hard. I'm choosing to fast. Aren't I so faithful to God's laws? Their religion had become a series of rituals for people to witness. Culturally, they had turned their faith into a performance in Jesus was calling them out on it here at a meal in a stranger's house. He's addressing this room full of Pharisees. And he doesn't just address their need to look like they have all of their things together, but he actually takes time to spell out patterns of behavior that Jesus himself has witnessed coming out of these Pharisees. And he does so by presenting these six charges uh, against the Pharisees and also the experts in the law. And they're presented as woes, uh, concerns against the Pharisees and the legal experts. And we see the first happen in verse 42. It's up on your screens. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all the other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. The first charge is that the Pharisees neglect justice. The Pharisees neglect justice. Check, check. there we go. Huh, I thought I'd be helpful and turn it off, and then I forgot to turn it back on. Uh, Jesus acknowledges the work they do in what's known as tithing. The Pharisees have been faithful in how they give to God, particularly in the areas that are required by law. However, Jesus laments the way that these Pharisees focus so carefully on dividing everything precisely. They spend so much energy presenting their tithes of all these herbs, but they ignore things like justice and the love of God. They've chosen to be sticklers and giving back their 10% in all areas of their life, but they largely ignore these areas that deal with other people, that deal with their community, that deal with the people they see each and every day. In fact, the word here translated as neglect is also translated in other places as pass by, to pass by. So Jesus is framing this, this critique, this charge against them that these particular Pharisees, didn't just not see justice. They did, in fact, see the need for justice, but they chose to ignore it and to pass on by it. And not only do they pass on justice, but they pass by the love of God as well. But Jesus isn't done here. This is just the first charge. He continues in verse 43, "'Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces.'" Here the charge is that the Pharisees just enjoy feeling superior. They enjoy feeling important. Again, Jesus is attacking this notion that the Pharisees are concerned with how things look from the outside. They yearn to be people that are recognized in the public spaces, people that are recognized in, in how their church would function. They yearn to be people that are seen as influential, and so they desire to be seated at these important places up front in front of everybody. They desire to be greeted with these long, intense, very formal greetings in the public marketplace. But it's all for show. It's all for their own individual gain. It's all a means for them to just flex on the people around them, like, look how cool I am. I'm important. I'm a Pharisee. I'm in charge. I run this show. It's all so that they can continue 
to be recognized within their community, but it's self-serving. It's inwardly focused. They just want to feel important. This pattern of behavior doesn't actually help anyone. And in fact, Jesus' next woe, his next woe was the one that is most concerning for these Pharisees. In verse 44, woe to you, because you were like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. So this charge, very simply, is that the Pharisees are unmarked graves. And you're like, well, I don't know what that means. Me neither. Just kidding. I I do. Uh, In order for us to fully understand the aggressiveness of what Jesus is saying here, we have to go look back at the requirements for ritual purity. At the time, there was the temple, right? The center of the city. And in order to uh, participate in temple activities, you had to maintain a state of ritual purity. You had to be ceremonially clean. And so the Torah states this list of all the different practices that would render you unclean, render you unfit for worship, render you uh, incapable of even entering into the temple space. Sometimes it delegated you to the outside of the city. You had to be sent away from the rest of your people. And so the Torah lists off all of these things. It says, here's what it looks like. If this practice happens, that means that you are unclean. And then it said, here's how long you are going to be unclean. And then on top of that, towards the end, it would wrap it up and say, if this was you, if you came into contact with this thing and you were unclean for seven days, at the end of seven days, here are all of the actions you have to take in order to be made clean again. And so Jesus' words here would render these prophets unclean based on what's written in Numbers 19, verse 11. It's up on your screens. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Very simple. If you touch a corpse, you're unclean for seven days. But then there's also verse 16. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Again, Jesus is using the extreme faithfulness of the Pharisees, these extreme practices against them. Numbers 19, 16 references touching a grave, but what counts as touching? In the strictest sense, the Pharisees all agreed. Touching is touching. It's putting my hand on it. It's kicking it, uh, which is how I broke my toe this morning or on Tuesday. Uh, it's touching something, physically grabbing it, grasping it, feeling it within your hands, that tactile response. That is touching in the strictest sense. But their oral traditions had a more loose interpretation too, which was if your shadow touched the grave, that counts as touching. And so they're all these Pharisees are existing in this world where, where their shadows are touching each other. And on top of that, uh, if you were ceremonially unclean, but you were hanging out with people that were clean, that were ritually pure, but you yourself are unclean, just by you being in their presence, you have now made that other person unclean as well. And so what Jesus is saying is that these guys are kind of walking viruses, making everyone else unclean as their shadows pass along their community. These Pharisees, high and mighty, practicing their perfect piety, going through extreme measures just to show the public how devoted they are to God and to God's laws are, in Jesus' eyes, doing the exact opposite. While they think that they're these beacons of prestige, the embodiment of faith, they're markers of spiritual decay, and their presence within the community is harmful. It's rendering their peers, their friends, their neighbors unclean. They're harming the spiritual life and the growth of the people that they are attempting to lead. And rightfully so. 
These Pharisees are upset. They're mad. I mean, this Jesus guy, this, this stranger that they had just invited into the space, invited into a meal, one of the most intimate things that you could do with someone else, is coming into their space and critiquing them and pointing fingers and saying, look at what you guys are doing. You're doing it wrong. I mean, you can't just walk into someone's house and go, uh, I hate your paint. Uh, I think it's ugly. I don't like your outfit. It's pretty bad. Uh, I don't like the way that you run your family. I don't like the way that you have this system set in place. If someone did that, you'd kick them out and be like, go. Like, get out of here. Get gone. I don't, I don't want you in my house. But here's Jesus entering into the space saying, I'm going to show you everything that I believe to be wrong with the system and the structure that you've created. And they're upset. Verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. This expert in the law, this lawyer, this guy who has spent time learning how the Torah works, thinks that by calling Jesus out and saying, hey, like you're also insulting us over here. He thinks that if I, he says this thing, Jesus is gonna be like, okay, I'm sorry, you're right. Let me tone it down. But no, Jesus turns it, flips it and says, let me tell you what's wrong with you people as well. He turns his attention to these people and he charges them and says, the experts lack compassion. The experts in the law lack compassion. Again, these are the people who helped with the creation of these oral traditions that the Pharisees relied upon. And in the creation of doing this, they actually made following the law much more complicated. Going back to that example of walking on the Sabbath, how much walking counts as work? What, what is work exactly? How do you define work? Is it work if I'm holding my child? Is it work if I go fix something in my backyard? Is it work if I break something right away and just mend it? What is work? These experts in the law looked at it and they established that there were 39 different actions that counted as work. And within each of these 39 actions that were constituted as work, there were also subcategories of how much of a thing you could do before you crossed that threshold. That is how they approach this. We're going to define this all the way down. We're going to cross our T's. We're going to dot our I's. They thought they were helping bring clarity to the law, but they are creating this massive system that is just overwhelming for the average citizen to attempt to follow. And then in the face of people struggling to follow all their definitions, struggling to follow all their understandings and interpretations, these experts did nothing. They lacked compassion. They didn't tweak their interpretation as they heard feedback from others. They just continued to stack it on and stack it on and say, just deal with it. This is what God wants of you. Just deal with it. Just do whatever is asked of you. They lacked compassion in the face of the people right in front of them. And then Jesus continues his criticism in verses 47 and 51. This isn't going to be up on your screens. Uh, but what Jesus does here is he accuses these legal experts of following in the footsteps of their ancestors. The charge here is that the experts reject the prophets. That they reject the prophets. They reject these people sent by God to deliver a specific message. When it came to the prophets, their forefathers rejected the prophets, but then also killed them or ran them out of town. They saw prophets, these messengers from God, as a nuisance and desired for their removal because oftentimes when God sends someone to deliver a message to you, it's not going to be the thing that you want to hear. 
And so their ancestors, challenged by the words that God was delivering to them through the voices of the prophets, just kicked them out, harmed them, killed them. And these legal experts, even though they haven't actually harmed anyone, they continue this, this history of their ancestors and forefathers by building tombs for the prophets. They honor these prophets who have died rather than accept and celebrate the true prophets standing in front of, not that the true prophets, bad language, not that the other prophets were false prophets, but like the ultimate prophet, Jesus, right there in front of them. They reject his message. They refuse to celebrate the person of Jesus right in front of them. God himself made flesh on earth, delivering them truths about who God is, what God is asking of them. They just push that message aside and say, we don't want to do this. They haven't learned from the actions of their ancestors. They continue to reject the messages. In fact, the resistance that they've already shown to Jesus, the fact that this wasn't met with, with a call to repentance and saying, you know what, you're right, I've done these things. They're pushing back against the words of Jesus. It shows in this moment that they are still actively rejecting the people God sends into this earth. And we, thousands of years later, know that the behavior of, the prophet, of, these, of these Pharisees, of these legal experts, only escalates. That their rejection becomes more and more physical, more and more violent, culminating in the crucifixion of Jesus. These legal experts reject Jesus. They reject his message. They reject the prophets, which takes us to our final woe, our final charge, which is this idea that the experts are a hindrance. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Jesus' charge here is that the methods, their methods of understanding the scriptures have removed the joy in seeking knowledge. Rather than allow people to discover the meaning of the Torah, these legal experts have postured themselves as gatekeepers of the faith. In order to access this, this good news of who God is, this good news of what God has done, this system that God invites us into, they, they just hold the key and say, do you want in? You gotta come to me. If you want the answers, you have to come to me. You have a question, talk to me. I'll give you the answer. I'll show you what it means. Want to know how to build your relationship with God? Come ask me. I spent my life studying the law. Just come. I have the answers. Come through me. You want access to God? It has to come through me. These experts, these Pharisees, rather than allow people the space to discover themselves, they just kept it all. So we're going to hoard this knowledge and we're going to make ourselves important. We're going to exert our authority whenever necessary to remind people who is in and who is not in, who's out. And somehow, these experts always found themselves on the inside. But right now, in front of them, they have God in the flesh. And they're still unable to understand, still unable to see who Jesus is. And in the rejection of this message, and the rejection of this new thing that God is doing through Jesus, they are preventing the people who are following after them from accessing and entering into the kingdom of God. They are hindering their followers from fully participating in what God offers to them and to us. And so there, you have it. Six woes, six sharp criticisms from Jesus. But what does any of this mean? 
How do Jesus' words to this ancient, extinct section of the Jewish faith relate to us at all? In order to get to there, it's important for us to look exactly at who Jesus is critiquing here. Because his words aren't meant for, like, common people. That sounds horrible. Uh, His words aren't meant for, like, normal folks. Jesus is addressing a particular crowd of people, a particular group of people, Pharisees and legal experts. These are people who are at the top of the religious hierarchy. These are influential, well-studied people, the modern equivalent of seminary students, people achieving their MDiv. These are people like me, who has a degree in biblical studies, a degree in pastoral care, People who go to school to learn how to read the Bible, learn how to understand God's laws. Jesus is talking to people like me, pastors, church leaders, people of influence in the Christian structure, people who hold these positions of authority, people who utilize their authority, their status in a matter that is self-centered and loses sight of what God cares most about, which is our hearts. And so I think the point that Jesus is trying to make clear here through this delivery of all of these woes is that everyone will be held accountable. Everyone will be held accountable. Jesus is addressing these people who are so used to setting the rules, so used to describing, laying out the pathway for what it looks like to follow after God. They're religious leaders who have the trust of their community, Their authority is rarely ever questioned because people just know, yeah, that's a Pharisee. That's a person who's been doing this their whole life. That's a legal expert. They went to Harvard to learn about the law. I'm going to trust them. Rarely is their authority a question, but unfortunately, their pride and their selfishness have gotten in the way. Rather than practice their faith as an outpouring of the zeal that they have for God, these Pharisees use their love for religion to set themselves apart from others. They go out of their way to remind the world around them just how different they are, how elevated they are, how full of stature they are. And in doing so, they're showing their true motivation that they aren't being driven by the love of God. They're not being driven by a desire to take on more of the attributes of God, but they're performing their religion because it just elevates them in the eyes of the public. They've forgotten how to be made clean. They've forgotten how to clean the inside of the cup. And so they're solely focused on the image and maintaining the image of a clean heart. They're just cleaning the outside. Their hearts haven't been changed to mirror the God they claim to love. So they neglect acts of justice. They neglect acts of compassion. They're leading people to believe that these visible practices will bring peace, that these visible practices will bring the shalom that only God can offer to them. And by forgetting this basic foundation of the faith, this idea that everything God has given to us is a gift, that life itself is a gift, that life can be spent serving God rather than serving self, by forgetting all of those things, they're hindering others from experiencing union with God. They claim to hold the keys, but they've never tested their keys against the lock to see if it opens the fullness that God offers to us. And so Jesus is holding these leaders accountable for their actions. No longer can leaders just make rules and then exclude themselves from participating in them. 
No longer can they say rules for thee, but not for me. No longer can religious leaders expect what is unattainable for their communities. No longer can these Pharisees and legal experts work the system and then be held unaccountable because Jesus is here to bring justice. Jesus is here to call religious leaders to the table. Jesus is here to remind our religious leaders to lay down their pride and to allow God to enter inside because our world doesn't need more people being held unaccountable. Our world doesn't need more people in positions of power doing whatever it is that they want without correction. I mean, just this week, let's just take a look at it. The world has felt the weight of what happens when people in positions of authority are allowed to rule mostly unchecked. Just this week, we've seen the ways that the human heart is bent towards sin, towards selfishness, towards wickedness. We've seen the way that people will do whatever it takes in order to get the thing that they want because they want it. And they're gonna come straight for it. We've seen how quickly individual desires can escalate into a global phenomenon. We've seen, many of us have seen and even felt the pain and the suffering and the fear that come at the hands of a person or at the hands of people who have yet to be held accountable for their behavior. We don't need any more of that. But this week, we've also seen the opposite. By the grace of God, we've seen example after example of people seeking compassion, of people seeking hope in this world. We've seen thousands of people risk their livelihood to protest what's been going on this week. We've seen thousands of people stand in line arm in arm with each other, knowing that they're going to be arrested, knowing that what they're doing is probably illegal, but still calling on their government to bring justice. We've seen people choose to hold space for those that they don't understand culturally, they don't understand the language, but they understand that they are human. And because they are human, they matter. They are important. And so they choose to hold space for all of these people on the shared rock that we call earth. Jesus' strongest words are for people in leadership, people with influence, people with authority. He's saying, you, we, me, myself, I'm going to be held accountable for how I lead. We are going to be held accountable for how we behave. We are going to be held accountable for the conditions of our hearts, for the things that we view as important, for the way that we treat and view and think about the people sitting in this room with us. It's for the leaders. But there's also some truth here for everyone else as well. It trickles down because if this is the standard that Jesus expects of the people in positions of leadership, he probably expects something similar for the people that they are leading. So what then do we learn from this passage about how to live? How do we work together to prevent our pride and selfishness from taking hold of us? How do we live out lives that meet the expectations that Jesus is laying out here? As we close this morning, the band can return to the stage because Jesus, Jesus provides the answers for us within the text. The first fix is to be generous. To be generous. In Jesus' initial criticism of the Pharisees, he charges them to be generous to the poor. 
This habit of generosity, according to Jesus, is going to work as a cleaning agent for the inside of their hearts. As we've seen, the Pharisees are mostly concerned with with behaviors that can be witnessed by other people. And so they invest highly in all of these external elements. There's a concern for (coughs) out. There it is. There's a concern. Oh, no. There's a concern for how they are viewed by those on the outside. But God didn't just create the outside. God didn't ask humanity to only look holy, but God asks humanity to be fully sanctified, to be restored inside and out. And Jesus knows the human heart is bent towards selfishness. God knows the human mind turns inward, that we want to protect our egos, that we desire to be respected and influential, that there is social and systemic incentive for us when we look like we have it all together. So we want to be people who look like we know what we're doing when it comes to our faith. And so we put on a face. We might choose to act a certain way in certain situations so that people know that we are Christians. We might want to draw distinctions between ourselves and our culture, not because we're genuinely excited or genuinely convicted, but because we want people to recognize we're Christians. We know what we're doing. We have a strong relationship with God. But that perspective of faith can develop into something that's just me, me, me. That perspective of faith can become self-centered, focused on the way that people view us, which means that we'll be constantly chasing others' approval, constantly chasing the opinions of other people to maintain that level of status and influence. That is not the goal of the Christian faith. The goal of the Christian faith is to become more like Jesus, to align our hearts with his, not to become people that just are merely influential, that are popular, that are looked at as pillars of the faith. And so to counteract that selfish desire, Jesus, understanding who we are, switches us from a practice-oriented perspective to an ethical perspective. Questions of, of how do I help the poor? What does it look like for me to help the people who need it the most? How can I find ways to put others before me? How can I better recognize the people in my community who need help? Because everything that's been given to me is a gift and a blessing. So how do I use my blessings to help and encourage other people? Jesus here is telling people that generosity is a fast track towards laying yourself aside. It is a fast track towards becoming pure. It's a fast track for becoming more aligned with who Jesus is, who God is calling each of us to be. Additionally, we can choose to seek justice to look for opportunities to help out in the world, to bring God's justice to the earth. Jesus challenges the Pharisees to not just commit themselves to what they've been offering God, but to remember to participate in God's vision for justice in the world. Because throughout the Old Testament, God continually reminds Israel to be a nation that seeks justice. This isn't something new. But the Pharisees were more concerned with nickel and diming their faith. Their primary concern was to make sure that all of their their tithes, their spices were allocated appropriately. And so they're missing out on opportunities to be invested in the community. They're missing out on opportunities to serve the world around them and bring peace and wholeness into their city. And not just peace and wholeness, they're passing by chances to bring the love of God to the people who need it most. Seek justice. And if that's the path you choose to take, it's not easy. 
Justice is hard. It's not only concerned with righting wrongs, but it's concerned with access and with equity, with restoring people's dignity. It's difficult work. It takes time. It takes energy and resources, and it means that we have to be generous with our time. We have to be generous with our resources. We have to be generous with our patience and grace and love and hope and compassion for the world. But as followers of Jesus, as ministers and participants in the ministry of reconciliation, it is our responsibility to live in ways that invite justice here on earth because it's all a part of how we choose to love others. The command to love our neighbor as ourselves is foundational to the Christian faith. If we can't learn to be generous, if we can't learn to seek justice, then we'll never learn what it means to love others fully. The Pharisees and the legal experts had replaced their love for people with a love for practices. God values people more than practices and piety, and God is looking for people who are truly concerned with being purified on the inside and the outside. Do not neglect your neighbor for your behavior, because God is looking for all of you. God is looking for your everything, not just the parts that you want to give up for the clout or the status or the authority and the power. God wants your everything. And this week, with so much happening in the world. Each of us has a unique opportunity to put these habits, to put these fixes into practice. We have a unique opportunity to be generous in spaces that can truly change lives, to be generous, to seek justice in spaces that will lay a foundation for our children and the generations in the future. We have chances to love others, even when they're on the other side of the world. So will you commit to the process of being purified? Will you participate in God's process of cleansing our hearts and the hearts of all creation by living generously, seeking justice, and loving others? Will you stand and join us in worship? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.